Look, what I'm about to tell you gonna sound crazy. I believe they've been abducting black people, brainwashing them, making them work for them as sex slaves and shit. Oh, sorry about the shit. I wrote the movie primarily during the post-racial lie. So the Obama era, when everyone was saying, hey, we're past racism, right? We did it. We did it. <laughs> um, and the, the, the notion of sort of bringing up racism was almost thought of as like the perpetuating it. Mm -hmm. And so the movie was originally meant to be a more direct, brutal wake-up call to say, no, the, the, the horror movie, guess what? The horror movie with a black protagonist, the cops showing up at the end, is a different, that's, that's a different thing. It began as the fun of a horror story. I wanted to, I wanted, it's my favorite genre. I wanted to have fun while writing. Um, and it turned, you know, in the middle of the process, it turned into something more important. You know, a, a well-crafted story and, a, and a, a good story is one of the few ways we can really not tell somebody you have to feel for somebody else, but make somebody feel because they're, they're experiencing it through entertainment. I was worried at several stages during the writing of, of the movie that this would be this horribly divisive project where, you know, I thought, I thought maybe I'd lose black people because it's, you know, we're victims in the movie and that's hard to watch, that's not fun. Maybe I'd lose white people because white people are the villains in the movie and that would be an assault, that would be. And so, but I, I stuck with it and one of the, you know, just the most, um, fulfilling and validating things to see was how an audience, you know, would sort of go in, you know, with their different preconceived notions of what the film were, but by the middle, they were all Chris. They were all the main character. Periskin has been in favor for the past, what, couple of hundreds of years, but now the pendulum is swung back. Black is in fashion. He was saying a joke about, oh, I would have voted for Obama three times. Yeah. The new version of that is, I've watched Get Out three times. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent, here with Kevin, Kat, and Dave. Hey, guys, how's it going? Hi. Great, how are you? I'm good. It's been uh, a whirlwind couple of weeks here at Speak All Evil. We uh, celebrated our one-year anniversary on Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day 2020 was the premiere of Speak All Evil, so we uh, celebrated with our first-ever live stream to mark the occasion, and I want to thank Launchpad for that. Launchpad is a community arts collective here in Maine, uh, they do tons of great work, so check them out at wearelaunchpad.org to see a little bit more of what they do, which is quite a bit. This week, say it loud, horror film has a very white history, and as often as the movies themselves deal with issues of race and racism, um, the representations and uh, the perspectives have been off uh, both in front of and uh, just as importantly behind the camera in all facets of horror films. So we wanted to talk uh, about a couple movies that loom pretty large for their uh, contribution to the history of black horror. Uh, I think for different reasons and at different times and in uh, different contexts, one older and one newer. Uh, Kevin and Dave have picked a couple movies for us this week. Kevin, what do you got? 
So I went with 1992's Candyman, directed by Bernard Rose. I think we're all familiar with the legend of Candyman, or at least Tony Todd as the titular character. Basically, you have a grad student in Chicago who was writing her thesis on urban legends, and she has focused in on the legend of the Candyman, which is a local, uh, allegedly local legend to the Cabrini Green public housing um, project. And we all know, we all know the legend. If you say Candyman five times in front of a mirror, he shows up and kills your ass. <laughs> I hadn't revisited this movie in a long time. I, I actually thought this was an 80s flick. Honestly, when I went back, I was shocked that it was even into the 90s. Uh, I liked it a lot. I, I think it had a lot to say. You know, like you just said, Trent, it, it's different times. So that maybe the, the points they were trying to make come off a little bit differently. But I appreciated it. I, I really liked the acting. I thought that Bernard Rose did a good job directing it. I liked getting into you know, back into the legend of Candyman and appreciating Tony Todd as the character. Uh, what did you guys think? I thought this movie was real scary. I had never seen it before. I went my whole life without seeing Candyman. Wow. I know. I mean, in my defense, it came out a year after I was born. But I've had plenty of time. But Shut up. <laughs> stop stop I'm showing off. I'm young and fruitful. Um, the fact that this urban legend can just show up and completely annihilate you out of nowhere. Nuh-uh. Uh, it's kind of like a Nightmare on Elm Street vibe kind of situation. Um, but instead of only getting you in your dreams, he can just get you anywhere. Uh, this is why I never say anything into mirrors except for how pretty I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> who's the People fairest like one me. in this Gosh bathroom? Gosh darn it. People <laughs> like me. That's what I tell myself every morning. Uh... <laughs> The fact that no one can see him also, like unless he wants them to, is scary in that you can't explain any of the actions that happen at all. Uh, Helen had no way out, it seemed, except to do what he wanted her to do because he made her look like a crazy murderer. And he was basically made it so he was all that she had left. So she's like, well, <laughs> guess I'm going to go with this guy, with the bees guy. Um but the most sad and stressful part for me was that the people in this community had no one to help them from this boogeyman. Uh, the police didn't care that people were getting murdered until a white woman was attacked in, in their vicinity. Um, and even then, they were all still at the Candyman's will. So, also, I don't like poop. And after this, I don't like bees. But hooks are still cool. <laughs> I think that when this came out, my barometer for horror was on a much more like grotesque, uh, blatant kind of thing because I saw it yesterday and um, it had like, it reminded me of Us, Nightmare on Elm Street, like you said, and It Follows. And then I realized, you know, like it, preceded most of these movies besides uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and it was pretty ahead of its time and like the in the way that it uh it was filmed and and the pace at which it scared you it, uh, I liked it so much more this time I feel like I was uh not smart enough to get it the first time I enjoyed it much more uh, a second watch and uh, I think that you know some of the horror 
things that uh, the lead character who plays Candyman had done since then had been very cheesy and hatchet and stuff like that. Um, and, and maybe I had forgotten that, you know, that this is uh, a classic. Candyman now, looking back and watching it again, it seems like kind of like the original uh, Karen horror story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This, this movie is about a, uh, a well-meaning uh, white liberal academic lady uh, who goes around killing tons of people and keeps blaming it on some mysterious black man that uh, is some sort of legend that nobody you know, can seem to pin down or find any evidence of this, but you know, she's the one. She keeps ending up like with a bloody knife in her hand on top of somebody who's dead and been stabbed ten times. Um, so she really uh, uses uh, all her mileage. Um, I really like had seen this so long ago, too, and this is based on a Clive Barker short story called The Forbidden, which when this came out, I was not far off uh, from having read. So I was really excited because I was a huge Clive Barker fan, and of course, this movie changes some stuff. It's still about the Candyman. That's the same. But um, the Barker version was more about like um, British underclass, economic underclass. And that's kind of where it took place. Um, so these filmmakers moved it to Chicago, to the uh, Cabrini Green. And I don't even now remember how much of the story is the same, but I liked it way more now. Um, I was totally into this. Um, I'm not sure that hook is really the best weapon. My only complaint would be it's like a it's, it's dull. Like, it's like a construction hook. You couldn't like how do you stab someone with that? I was expecting more of a of a doctor hook kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, so that would be my only problem. But otherwise, uh, I loved Candyman. I had a great time. Did you say doctor hook? Uh, Captain Hook. It's like was he Admiral PhD? Hook? I don't know. <laughs> I gotta say also um, the the racial element of this was totally lost on me at the time. I mean, I had no idea when I saw this movie that there was anything to do. I mean, just totally oblivious. So that was kind of like a whole new thing. And obviously Jordan Peele is uh, doing a remake of this, which is very exciting. What? So you had the Nightmare on Elm Street remake back in 2010 where they kicked Robert England to the curb and said, no, nah, no, nah, we're going to bring in Jackie Earl Haley because he's such a great actor and we're going to recast Freddy. I love the fact that Jordan Peele is doing a 2021 version of Candyman and he's still bringing back Tony Todd to be the Candyman. That's yes. that's awesome. I'm so excited. I had no I didn't even think about it cuz I didn't do any research cuz I if I haven't seen a movie for the pod, I don't want to do any research going in. I just want to experience it with the viewers, if you will. Um, but that's right. like the best news I've heard all day. So all week, all month. It's also being uh, so the the it should have come out last year, I believe. I think this is another covid victim. Mm -hmm. But Peel wrote it, but he had Nia Costa direct it and she is doing Captain Marvel, too. She'll be the first black woman and the youngest ever Marvel director to do anything in the Marvel Universe. So baby steps, mm -hmm. but all, all good, all good news. Yeah, it's interesting because Tony Todd is kind of legendary in horror, in part because of Candyman. He was also in um, a Night of the Living Dead remake that Tom Savini directed in like '92. I don't know if I've ever even seen that. Um, Nineteen ninety, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's worth a watch. I mean, was he the first major black slasher? Was there ever a black slasher before Candyman? Blackula. Not not like the traditional slasher. They'd always been white characters. Black exploitation films and stuff, sure. This may have, I think Trent's got a point. This may be like the first like straight American slasher that featured a a, a black 
antagonist. Yeah, and it's like Definitely. it's now it's um, it's held up, and and Tony Todd is like very proud of it, and um, they talk about this movie in the um, the Shutter documentary um, Horror Noir that talks about like the whole history of black horror, and this movie is regarded as such a breakthrough because. Tony Todd was allowed to play that character, which had traditionally been a white character. But it's interesting to look back now. At the time, this was like a very controversial movie for the same reasons that it's celebrated now. Um, I found actually an old uh, an article still online uh, from the Chicago Tribune from 1992. You can look this up. The title was Black Slasher Candyman Draws Fire Over Racist Depictions. And the article goes on to quote uh, a couple black filmmakers, uh, original uh, Hudlin of Boomerang, uh, Carl Franklin of One False Move, and some others, and they're heavily criticizing the film. So at the same time, there were other people that, that lauded it and that sort of kind of, I think, had a different angle on what they were doing. But it's interesting to see how something could be so controversial in its time and then you know, evolve uh, to be more celebrated later for like the same issues. Mm-hmm. I love that you're uh, starting to take shots at uh, critics, Trent. Come on. Yeah, get on <laughs> Those are filmmakers. I appreciate that. Those are that. filmmakers. I'm only quoting filmmakers. I don't care about critics. <laughs> no, it, it, it is interesting. Trent, you, like you brought up, uh, Barker had this set in Liverpool, which is uh, where he was living. And, you know, Bernard Rose decided to flip it to Cabrini Green, which was a legit public housing project in Chicago. Uh, I love uh, some of the realism. Like, I-, I thought you were going here when you talked about the article, but uh, Steve Bojira, who was a journalist, wrote a bunch of articles in 1987 and 1990 about a real murder of a woman named Ruthie May McCoy, who was a resident of Chicago's Abbott Homes housing project. In 1987, she was killed by an intruder who got into her apartment through an opening behind her bathroom medicine cabinet, Mm-mm. which if you've seen Candyman wow. like we just had... Uh, it's clear that they were taking some some real uh, some stuff out of the real world for this. Uh, Rose also said that he wanted to focus on Cabrini Green's residents as human beings and try to get away from any tropes that were being done by movies in the ghetto at the time, such as drugs and gangs. I don't think he totally avoided that because there was still the whole fake Candyman element that you had in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is. None of us were going to get this in 1992. I mean, most of us were, you know, I was barely a teenager. Um, and like you said, Dave, I think you have a great point that this came out in an odd time for horror where we were being oversaturated with things and we were looking more for like sensationalism and creative kills or a punchline after the kill or right before the kill. We weren't really looking for like heavy social commentary. Uh, one of the things that I will say is Virginia Madsen, who plays Helen, who has had a, an amazing career as an actress, but I will call her out for Zombie High. Love Zombie High. Uh, I, do, I do find it slightly problematic that at the end of the movie, you still have the, the white woman saving the day, mm-hmm. if you will. Like They still couldn't yep. quite stick the landing and be like, well... You know, we'll we'll talk about a bunch of really good stuff and put it in front of you and make you think about it, hopefully. But, you know, what? at the end of the day, Helen, we really got to give Helen lots of props here. Trent, I'm just wondering, because you said you read the short story it was based on, did they talk about in the story, like, how the Candyman became the Candyman? Because I know in the movie, it's like a lynch mob, basically, that attacks him. I don't remember how, I don't remember the backstory of the original uh, Candyman mm-hmm. 
It was it was the same it's idea. A ver- it's a very, very short story. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they took it and ran with it, basically. Yeah, I was interested to read about Cabrini Green, which is like uh, a pretty notorious um, housing project in Chicago that was very real for a long time and was involved in like so many controversies from so many different angles. I don't believe it exists anymore, but that's an amazing history you can uh, you can check out too. Can we talk about the bees? <laughs> the bees are a big deal, man. I for I, I knew that like Candyman obviously like I mean Jesus isn't like the the cover of Candyman two Farewell to the Flesh like <laughs> bees. You know, I, I think I forgot about the bees, but again, you know, watching a movie like this back in like 1992 or whenever I would have seen it, you know, I wouldn't have thought about the fact like, are those real bees or are those CGI bees? Those were all real bees. This is insane. This is one of the best parts of this movie is you have this beekeeper, Norman Gary, who did like My Girl, which we all remember the bee oh. scene from My Girl. Uh, Fried green tomatoes. He was on set and over 200,000 bees were used. Most of the crew, as they were filming, were wearing body suits to avoid stings. Tony Todd himself negotiated a $1,000 per sting raise or bonus. (laughs) And he ended up with, depending on where you read it, between 23 and 26,000 extra dollars for how many times he was stung by a bee. But the, the, the seminal scene with the bees is when Tony Todd opens his mouth and releases the bees into Virginia Madsen's face, into Helen's face. Those bees really were in his mouth. He wore like some sort of like protective thing and they put all like 500 bees That's so crazy. In his I mouth. can't believe that. They, they had to use freshly hatched, non-stinging like young bees. And the crazy thing is Virginia Madsen was allergic to bees. No. So they had to make sure that, like, none of these bees were... I, I just... I, I loved the bee aspect. Thank you, Trent, for bringing that up. I, I was, like, blown away and fascinated because I'm terrified of bees. I've been stung once in my entire life, Aww. and you would have thought that I was just hit by a nuclear weapon. Are you allergic to bees? I'm not, but it fucking <laughs> hurt, and I was upset about it. Um. Yeah, I... Uh... You know, because it's the iconic cover where it's like the bees. And so I was like, okay, there's bees in here somewhere, but I, I guess I'll find out where. And I found out. That toilet? That's what I was talking about with the poop mm, and the bees. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you walk no, into that bathroom, you. she's like, ooh, ooh, the smell. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's the fucking shit words on yeah. the wall. That's what the smell is. And then, like, she lifts the, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's a toilet full of bees. And not poop. Not poop. Poop up. Poop elsewhere, but bees in the toilet. I, I honestly, I might rather stick my hand into a toilet full of bees than a toilet full of poop. Uh, That's yes. a very tough call. I'm very sensitive. In a like public restroom. Thinking about it. Yeah, yes. Not all bees are bad. I think I might go bees. Is both an option? Myself. I don't know. Me too. I could tame uh, the bees. This is, is this is not streaming anywhere, right? I think you have to rent this one. Yeah, sorry for that pick. I don't know. I, I, I rent I rent sometimes even when I don't have to because it's like sometimes it's just more convenient. Allegedly, Eddie Murphy was the first choice for Candyman. But one, he was oh, too expensive. Yeah. And two, he was too short. Eddie Murphy's 5'9", Tony Todd is 6'5". Um, but the movie that we're going to talk about next, Eddie Murphy was also going to be the main character before the director decided he wanted to go with a younger character. Um, there's a bunch of stuff on this, uh, sweets to the sweet, which obviously comes up a lot in this in graffiti. 
and and the Cabrini Green um, public, the people that are living there, they they're constantly talking about sweets to the sweet. It's actually a line from Hamlet where Hamlet's mother is referencing a bouquet scattered in the grave of Ophelia, which was Hamlet's former lover. Uh, Virginia Madsen, if you notice, and I didn't I didn't even think about this, but it's very impactful having read about it and then watching the movie again. Every time Candyman shows up, instead of screaming her head off and freaking out as most actresses would do in a horror movie in a slasher when they're presented with the antagonist, she just like zones out. They were actually oh yeah, her I read that. those scenes. Yeah, and eventually she she got felt very uncomfortable with that, which I <laughs> wholly endorse. And ask them to stop doing that and just let me act. Like, I get the point now. You don't actually have to hypnotize me. But Bernard Rose, the director, thought maybe that would be cool instead of just having somebody screaming their head off uh, a ton of times. Um, I think my favorite random thing about this movie was Dewan Guy, who was the little kid that Helen finds who takes her to the bathroom that you were talking about, Kat, where she finds, like, the poop-slash-bee situation. Um, He bonded so hard with Virginia Madsen and uh, she took him to the screening of the movie but he was a little kid and he was already so scared of horror movies that the opening music scared him so much that he left the theater and stood right outside and somebody would let him know when his scenes were coming so he could run back in yeah those hypnotism uh, the hypnotism scenes really work I was thinking like man this is so weird she really when I was watching, like, she really seems out of it. So it's such a strange response from what you would normally see in those situations in this kind of movie. And it wasn't until later I was looking stuff up and I saw that. It was so wild. Um, she was great in this. She's done a bunch of stuff, too. Um, she was in Better Watch Out uh, as the mom that we talked about on one of our Christmas episodes. Yeah, briefly, a, a wasted Virginia uh, Madsen yeah. casting. <laughs> Um, she's, she was in Sideways, The Prophecy, various movies with Haunting in the title. Um, and I thought Tony Todd was great in this, too. He's very scary. It's funny to think of, like, Eddie Murphy doing this role. Um, he's very no intense. Way. And, like, the dialogue, I don't remember, you know, how much is directly from the short story, but it's very, like, Clive Barkery dialogue that he delivers, like... The pain is delectable, you know, and stuff like that. Like, it's exquisite <laughs> to be my victim. Uh, not in the French <laughs> accent, but uh, he does. Have, it's just like very typical, like Hellraiser-y type stuff that I thought uh, Todd pulled off pretty well. And I will say, I think he's he has to be Daddy of the Week, right? There's no other contenders. I know who Mommy of the Week is, and it ain't Virginia Madsen. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! I would let him take me to the B. The bee colony or wherever he's going. Hell. I'm going there anyway. <laughs> With his hook. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think about giving you the hook every week. Hello. Hello. I will say I watched, I also, wa- I know it's not Clive Barker week, but I did also watch Hellraiser because I was like, oh, oh Clive wow. Barker, sure. He, Clive Barker is so horny for hooks, I can't stand I it. I know, he is. He oh, looks- it's a fucking hook every, every two seconds. There's a hook coming out. I want to find the hidden room in his house. <laughs> I don't. I want to stay far away from that room. I don't want to get hooked at all. Every single thing he does comes down to pleasure and pain. Like all the stories. <laughs> hey, like, that's true. They're all about I that. know. Clive Barker watched Fifty Shades of Grey and was like, this is what I'd show my kids for cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> amateur hour. Total amateur hour. <laughs> I do want to shout out Ted Raimi. Cameo in the beginning of Candyman. Sam Raimi's brother. Oh. 
And I'd also like to shout out Philip Glass, who is a legendary wow. composer and musician who did the score for this. And he hated the movie. He only agreed to do it because it was Clive Barker, and he thought it would be way more off the rails than it was. Oh. But he has been quoted in recent years saying it's one of his most popular soundtracks. It's really hard to find. I've been searching for it on vinyl. And he admitted, yeah, I guess I'm happy I did it. I still get checks from that soundtrack. Wow. That's why we do it. My pick for this week was Get Out. You have to have Get Out in your horror catalog. That's a 2017 American horror film written and directed by Jordan Peele in his directorial debut. It stars Daniel Kaluuya, Allison Williams, Lil Rel Howery, Bradley Whitford, Caleb Landry Jones, Stephen Root, and Kathleen Keener. Um, Get Out is the movie that changed everything. Uh, I love, I love this movie. Uh, I love the, it's to me, it's more of a sci-fi than a horror movie because it's about like this kind of alternate reality um, that also hits home and like touches a nerve. Um, but I think this is one of the greatest horror movies of the last 10 years by far. Uh, what did you guys think of it? Man, I love this movie. I had seen this a couple times before now, and I like it more every time. This time, my my main takeaway was that uh, Get Out is like, it's like the racist Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. He's just being like wow. <laughs> totally gaslit by a racist cult the whole time. Um, mm-hmm. it, it could have been like a satanic panic type movie, but it's not. And this is another one that I, you know, even though it was only 2017, I, I can't say that I fully got it the first time. I saw it again, and I was like, um, yeah, getting it a lot more now. And then now when I watch it, it's just like more of a discovery of like what a great horror movie it is. Um, mm-hmm. I think this one is a little tough, at least it was for me, because like it's kind of like a lot of it, or at least parts of it, uh, are sort of aimed at um, me in some respects, in in mm-hmm. the commentary on the, you know, well-meaning white Northeastern liberal, however you want to put it, really more of a communist myself at this point. But um, that sort of 
uh, insight is like, <laughs> it's kind of tough to, to, you don't get it right, right away. Um, and then you really see how brutal and how devastating it is. And I, I'm just in awe of this movie. It just does everything right. Uh, it's so great. Right from the opening, right away. I loved the, uh, there's so many homages in this to horror history. I, I can't even keep track of all the movies that you got to start with the harbinger of hitting something on the road on the way to the hell. I mean, it just, it does all that stuff and it does it so well. Uh, big, big fan of this one. It's nice to see you uh, finally giving Rosemary's Baby uh, homage. <laughs> and uh, He's done it a few times recently. He's actually done that a few yeah. times. That's not, if you go he back to realize recent episodes, he's doing Trent it. has shouted out Rosemary's Baby or I... compared movies that he's reviewing favorably to it. Uh, oh, wow. this, this is an insane movie. And Dave, when we were talking about this a couple weeks ago, you said something that really hit home. And we were talking about Candyman and Get Out as the picks for this week. And you said, well, you know, Get Out, you basically have that memorized. And I've talked a lot on the show about how when I watch a movie for the first time, I don't remember a goddamn thing. I only remember my initial reaction, like my, my emotion, like how, how I felt about it. And I couldn't tell you a quote. I couldn't tell you a scene. And when, when Dave said that, I was like, holy shit, you're right. Like, from the first time I saw this movie, and this would have been the at least third or fourth, I literally have this movie memorized. It's unbelievable how much this movie stuck with me. And to your point, Trent, not that I got it every single scene, but I remember this movie opening shot to, to closing credits, and that's very rare. So Jordan Peele did something unbelievable. A guy coming from a comedic background and not just dipping his toe into the horror genre, going all in and making an incredibly ballsy social commentary horror movie that is going back hundreds of years and making us also think of both the present as well as the future. I, I thought it was really good. It is still scary. There's parts of this movie that even if you know, they're still very, very scary. I thought that Daniel Kaluuya as Chris, Dave, that you mentioned, um, I love him from one of my favorite Black Mirror episodes, 15 Million Merits. Love the fact that he got this role basically based on his performance in that. I thought he was unbelievable. He played it perfectly. And then the whole cast that you just talked about, Dave, Bradley Whitford. I love Bradley Whitford. I know everyone's always talking about the West Wing, but I will always talk about Cabin in the Woods. Love that guy. Caleb Landry Jones keeps coming up on this show as one of like the greatest character actors. He's in so we already talked about him on The Last Exorcism. Trent and I talked about it on Patreon with Antiviral. He's in so many things and he always plays it so perfect. Um, you know, Steven Root, Jesus Christ, office space. He's still trying to find his swing line stapler, except now he's a blind racist guy trying to steal a black dude. It's it's an unbelievable cast. Catherine Keener, we don't have to talk about. I mean, she's been everywhere. It, it's great. How he pulled together this cast, this script that he wrote himself, and this movie went out and made it for $4.5 million, and then the world spent $255 million watching it just at the box office. You, you can't ignore this. It's huge. This fucking movie. Talk about stressful. Uh... As a white person, I'm obviously missing an entire experience of terror uh, in this movie, but 
it's still fucking terrifying in, in e- every other aspect. Uh, the whole sunken place scenario, I think, is what gets me the most. I get sleep paralysis, and that seems to be very similar uh, to what this shitty family does to their victims. Laying there, unable to move, seeing everything, not being able to speak or breathe. Uh, not fun. So to have it happen for real, quote unquote, by uh, evil white people. No, thank you, please. I'd rather not. I'll just stay in my bed and experience it there. But while it's terrifying, it's also very comedic. Obviously, Jordan Peele's bread and butter. Uh, the TSA character steals every scene he's in. I love him so much. There's this one moment and it's like very, I didn't notice it the first time I watched it, but he's like taking notes on like what could have happened to his friend. And he, you just see him go, magic's not real. And like cross out the word magic <laughs> on this notepad. And I had to pause it cause I was laughing so hard. Um, but also it's obviously a commentary on the microaggressions and the blatant, racism that people of color deal with on an everyday basis in every situation that they go into so it all makes for a very effective horror movie i obviously loved it if anyone disliked this film i don't think i would trust them anymore to be honest when you see the blue lights and you see the black man over the white woman everyone thinks the same thing and it's a very powerful thought and like to me that was one of the the most powerful statements of the whole movie when that happens and you're like, it's the blue lights, like it immediately goes to what you've been conditioned to feel. And it's very powerful because of how you felt in that scene, like how you felt, how you were terrified, what you were afraid of. And you, at that point in the movie, you're completely inside that character's, mind state and I don't know it was intense for me Kevin you mentioned uh, Caleb Landry Jones plays uh, the white brother Jeremy the minute the minute he is on screen like oh no yeah. This guy is he's <laughs> yeah. so amazing in this snake. he's so perfect a total like, snake You're getting creeped out already yeah He's the only person that make that could make a ukulele seem creepy <laughs> like, so i already freaked out about the whole family you've already been the whole like i would have uh, voted for obama a third time oh if i could you know, you're already like okay here we go and then jeremy shows up and you're just like oh no it's very very tense that whole dinner scene mm-hmm. where chris is being introduced to rose's white family and you know that you know that Jeremy is going to start some shit, and it's just the whole movie is incredibly tense from beginning to end. It's incredibly well paced. There really isn't a, a dull moment in this, or that a moment that doesn't work toward the story. Did we all see this in the theaters? Did everybody hear? I did the first time. I yeah. didn't know. It, it did. Was your experience the same as mine? Where when the ending did unfold, the entire theater just started clapping uncontrollably and like cheering. Yeah. Yeah, that can be taken one of that can be taken one of a couple of ways. Uh, but I loved I loved watching this uh, through the eyes of the show, which I say a lot. But you notice a lot of things when you're trying to like really dig into it, so we can have hopefully what is an intelligent conversation about the movie. And some of the stuff was like you know Trent, you talked about the the harbinger of hitting an animal, and uh, the cops do show up at that scene 
And at first, uh, Allison Williams' character, Rose, she's sticking up for Chris with the cop because the cop doesn't ID her. He doesn't ask her anything. She's white. He's black. And you're like, oh, that's so nice. And then knowing the movie and watching it for a third or fourth time, you realize, oh, wait, she just doesn't want that cop to run his license because then there'll be a record of where he's going. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't all that nice to begin with, and then there's um, like his uh, Catherine Keener's character who plays the mother of Rose and Jeremy. She's super worried about Chris smoking. She's very, very uh, not into the fact that he's smoking. Oh, well, then you realize, well, she's not all that worried about his health. She's worried mm. about a vessel. Uh, so it was it was fun to watch this movie again and sort of pick up on the intentions of, like you said, Trent, it's amazing how hard that hit me. The intentions of a very Northeast white liberal family and what they really think about black people. It it, it was that, that blew my mind more than anything uh, on this watch. Also, Allison Williams was amazing at be, just being like demented and twisted, so, even. and she's so good in uh, the perfection. I don't know if you guys have seen the perfection, yes. but yeah, Netflix. Uh, she's like on her way to be like a straight up scream queen. Oh my like, god, I didn't even. Oh right, that's her from the perfection. Wow. Yeah, she's yeah. also great in uh, a series of unfortunate events, which is a Netflix show uh, with NPH. Oh, she was in Neil, that. Neil, and she was in Girls. I was gonna. The, I know her from Girls, and yeah. she was a fucking bitch in Girls. So I was getting ready to <laughs> hate her in this one, and she did not disappoint. This crazy bitch, I just can't. <laughs> the fucking cereal scene when she's just eating the cereal and then <laughs> sipping the milk separately. She's crazy. She's crazy. It, it go. It goes to. Wow. It goes to Peel's writing and directing, and. And the casting. I mean, she her character is so well written, and she acts it so well. And one of the things, again, this goes to the problem of white privilege or just a an inherent desire to not think of ourselves as racist. She is constantly asked, okay, well, you were hypnotized too, right? You weren't really evil. And she has gone on record as saying, no, I wasn't. I wasn't hypnotized. I wasn't put under a spell to do these things. I was just fucking evil. And she adds a little addendum to that that says, by the way, most of the people that ask me that question are white people. You don't say. She she is amazing in this. Her ability to go from the like sickly sweet, very convincing, um, you know, concerned and supportive, uh, innocent little girlfriend to the most diabolical. Uh, she is incredible in this mommy of the week all the way. Um, the party scene, wow. quote unquote, in this mm-hmm. that they call the party is one of the most uncomfortable. And that, that's when I really started to make the Rosemary's Baby connection. You know, they have this quote unquote party at the house uh, and Chris is going to meet all these uh, people, all of them, with the exception of one being white. And the sequence of events the scenes and the conversations that happen with chris are so unbelievably just cringe beyond cringe like oh hey chris uh you golf at all i love tiger woods trying to engage oh with that God. and then like the the lady uh. in the kitchen starts like feeling his pectoral muscles and like 
like squeezing his shoulders. Oh, what a fine specimen. Just like, oh my God, what yeah. is going on with this movie? But it's like, it's honestly sad and terrifying because you know that those are pulled from real life experiences. You know what right? I mean? Yeah, like, 100%. you know, you go to a party as a person of color and they're all like, yes, we love black people. Let's talk about black people. You're a black person. Like, Tiger Woods. I love Barack Obama. Like, everybody fucking chill. Take a chill pill. Like, it was it was so cringy, so stressful. It was like my favorite movie I've ever watched where I've just been stressed the entire time. The, the party scene is one of my favorite scenes. But I think, honestly, my favorite scene in the entire movie is when Chris confronts Georgina and he's talking about the party and he says, uh, I, I don't like being around too many white people. And Georgina has like the tears fall out of her eyes. Oh my God. And like watching it this time, I was like, oh man, like that's Georgina's personality coming through. And then realizing, nope, that's just the racist person that they put in her body who is like, oh, damn, I hate black people. Why are you telling me you don't like white people? Yeah, the way that all of those little things unfold, the stuff with Georgina and Walter, who are like the hired help. Yeah, and Wal- this, we need uh, to talk about this, Walter. State, yeah. um, the way that it unfolds with them, and also the character Logan, who is the only other black person who is at the estate, who's a guest at the party, and like is pretty obviously like a servant of this much older white lady. It's it, Every time you watch it, you see more things that then make more sense later on. And when it gets to the actual auction, it's just like, whoa, this movie, you know at that point where everything is going. Dave, you mentioned Lil Ray Howery, who plays Rod, the TSA agent. Kat, you mentioned that he steals every scene he's in. He, to this day, is still recognized when he's going through airports by TSA agents (laughs) who come up to him and they're like, yeah, man. (laughs) Like They totally recognize him. But he was on Kimmel leading up to the Oscars, and Kimmel was talking to him about, wow, it must be exciting. You guys are going to be at the Oscars. You're up for four awards. And he wasn't invited. Like, he didn't make the cut. So Jimmy Jimmy Kimmel, again, let's make the white person the hero. Jimmy Kimmel had to be the one to get Lil Ray Howery into the Oscars because he was hosting the Oscars that year. Well, it's kind of that kind of reminds me of, like, Gone with the Wind, like the woman of color and gone with the wind wasn't allowed to go at all to the Oscars, but she still like won the Oscar. So, well, Jordan Peele is definitely uh, gonna make a huge wave in horror movies over the next few years. I think. You guys talked about Rod, um, the TSA character who's best friends with Chris. One of my favorite parts in the whole movie is that he immediately goes to sex cult theory. Yes, <laughs> he's like basically calling the whole thing out in real time. He's like. Sex cult sounds like a sex cult, um, which, you know, I don't blame him. That's probably where I would have gone to. There's some great comedic scenes of him at the police department trying to tell him that his whole theory about this, like, white sex cult that he says at one point, like, (laughs) white people are always recruiting people for sex cults. Don't you know that? Like, this is definitely a sex cult. This is some eyes wide shut shit. Like, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) But he's right the whole time, which is great. Yeah. And then he's like, I told you, I told you not to go to that house. <laughs> yeah. We talk about it all the time. Like when, when's it time to leave? When's it time to leave? Like everywhere from the invitation to so many other movies we talked about. And Rod is like, dude, you just need to fucking leave. 
And Chris is like, no, nah, no, nah, I got this. I got this. Like, my phone not being charged is a total, you know, it's innocent. Like, no, nah, I'm going to stick around. No, dude, listen to Rod. Everybody, watch Get Out, find the Rod in your life, and always listen to Rod. <laughs> That's why he's the best character in the movie. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, even, like, more specifically, you know, we've talked about some of the indictments that are handed down in, in this movie about our culture. Um this idea, that I thought one of the more specific ideas that I thought was powerful is the idea that white people always want the trappings of black culture in, in so many ways, whether it be um, artistically, stylistically, athletically, whatever it is, you kind of have this like this worship of so much of black American culture. And at the same time, this constant distancing. You don't want to be that close to it. You just want to like use the good parts. You don't really want to have to think too hard about it. Um, you don't want to certainly be uncomfortable uh, on, on, under any circumstances. Like that's basically the the core of like what this family is about. And I, I will say as far as um, I feel like a lot of the times I want more gore in a film if there's not a lot, but I don't think this movie needed gore. It didn't need it at all. It had like a couple stabby scenes, a couple bloody scenes. And I was like, okay. But never was I like, this would have benefited from more like head smashings or whatever. Like, this was fine. Just the I way I was going to say there was some uh, some good kills at the end. This I thought this movie pretty paid off. You had uh, vicious face stomping. Didn't really show the face as much. You had the, the elk head, the stuffed elk head antler kill. I loved kill. that mm, one. Yeah. Uh, one. Reminded me of Silent Night, Deadly Night. Pretty classic there. You have the uh, stabbing in the eye with the knife that's already through your own hand. Uh, I, I thought this paid off in the traditional like horror uh, gross kills. Uh, at the end, you got uh, plates being removed from the tops of skulls. Uh, yeah, I thought it delivered enough yeah. of that for me. I mean, it was implied, I think, a lot, but yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Like, I was never like, I wish yes. they would have showed more. You know, there was no eyeball. You know, it went in the eyeball. Yeah, they don't show you the eyeball. Exactly. Sure. I'm like, where'd it go? I really respected the uh, the violence in Candyman. Candyman was more violent than I remembered it being. Yeah, yeah. Candyman was pretty bloody stuff. I think that's why Get Out worked, though, because. He, he made a, a genuinely terrifying movie. And we're not giving Daniel Kaluuya enough credit for some of the scenes that he had where he just showed, like, legit terror and hopelessness uh, and realization. I think that's something that actors really don't get enough credit for is, like, when they can convey, holy shit, I am just now realizing what's going on. I don't think Get Out would have worked as well if it had sort of the violence of Candyman or the gore that you guys are talking about. I think it works because that stuff's implied and the and it's re- reliant upon the actors to have those moments of realization and and pure terror or hopelessness to, to really drive home the emotion and the, the social commentary. This movie is important enough that it inspired UCLA to start a class called The Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and Black Horror Aesthetic. So there's actually a course you can take at UCLA and there was one day when the professor got Jordan Peele to show up. He sat in the back of the room. He asked a question. Jordan Peele stood up and said, I'd like to answer that. And the whole class lost their minds. And Jordan Peele proceeded to teach the class, which I think is very, very cool. When uh, a modern horror movie with such heavy, uh, heavy things to talk about can inspire an actual uh, college like UCLA to have a course. Uh, I also love, there's a story about Chance the Rapper, 
who saw this movie and loved it so much that he bought every single ticket for a day's worth of showings in Chicago and just tweeted out, just show up with your ID and you'll have a ticket waiting for you. And he wanted people to come see this movie. Uh, you don't, you know, that doesn't happen a whole lot, uh, which lets you know how special this movie is. Um, I also want to point out another thing, and it goes back to what I was talking about with Rose sort of uh, shunning the cop, and she didn't want she didn't want the cop or a record of where Chris was going. She wanted him to fully be a just missing black man in the country. Thirteen percent of our population, thirty four percent of our missing persons. Well, story-wise, I think the last thing that I'm not 100% sure I got until this most recent viewing, I won't give anything away, but Grandma and Grandpa, I'm not 100% sure I got that the, the first or even second time I watched this. There's so much going on in this movie. It really it rewards um, more than one viewing. And you can actually stream this right now on Fubo or Fox Now, uh, DirecTV, or you can rent it on most of the big platforms. I rented it. It's FX now, not Fox now. So you can rent this. Uh, this is streaming on Fubo or Fox Now uh, or DirecTV. FX actually. now. Uh, or you can rent it. Wait, did I say Fox now again? Yeah, you did. Okay, FX wait, now. Oh, wait, wait, one more. <laughs> so uh, this is streaming no right now on no Fubo uh, or uh, FX now uh, or DirecTV. Or you can rent it on most of the major platforms pretty easily. I rented it. 